If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the fourth History Extra podcast for June 2012. The History Extra podcast is put together by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. And there are more details on our website, historyextra.com. We're also available digitally these days. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. To find out more information on the iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. And as always, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash historyextra and twitter.com forward slash historyextra. Earlier this month, we invited historians Anna Whitelock and Kate Williams to the Tower of London to speak at the third of our BBC History magazine lecture series. With the Queen's Diamond Jubilee fresh in everyone's minds, we thought it would be the perfect time to compare two monarchs who shared a name but reigned in very different eras, Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II. Tudor expert Anna Whitelock kicked off the event with her thoughts on the Virgin Queen. Before I consider the reign of Elizabeth I um, and the successes and failures of it, which is what I'm here to to do, and without wishing to encroach on Kate's territory, I just want to offer by way of introduction some brief initial thoughts about both queens and in particular um, the relationship of the present queen to her Elizabethan predecessor. I want to begin by showing a rare... Indeed, perhaps a unique image of um, the two queens, the first and second Elizabeth, superimposed on one another. It commemorates the 450th anniversary of Westminster School um, on the occasion of Elizabeth I's refounding of the Abbey Church in 1560. Um, You can see Gloriana there, um, jewel-encrusted hair, 
tight lips, that sort of proud Tudor nose. Um, and eclipsing her is our present queen, um, who is perhaps there with her softer features, um, but obviously the hair very familiar to us, and the crown tiara, um, albeit a sort of rather softer, perhaps less, less iconic image. Um, what unites them, however, I think, is probably a purposefulness of expression. Um, they're there, very focused, looking very determined. Um, and here, as I say, in this, what I think is a unique image, these two great queens divided from each other by some three centuries are together. What's interesting about this is that the, uh, from the beginning of the reign of um, the second Elizabeth, our present queen, she set out very deliberately and clearly to distance herself from any association with her legendary predecessor. In her Christmas broadcast of 1953, she said, Some people have expressed the hope that my reign may mark a new Elizabethan age. Frankly, I do not feel myself at all like my great Tudor forebear, who was blessed with neither husband nor children, who ruled as a despot and was never able to leave her native shores. So she made her position quite clear. So Gloriana was firmly put into her box and not really exhumed until July 1967 when a somewhat odd decision was taken that the Queen would knight the round-the-world yachtsman Francis Chichester, not at Buckingham Palace, um, but at a public ceremony at Greenwich using the same sword that Elizabeth I had used to knight Sir Francis Drake um, on board the Golden Hind in 1580. And it was the beginning, obviously it was a kind of great media event, and it was the beginning of a succession of what I think we sort of would now describe as in reinventions of tradition. And these were sort of then began to be scattered unevenly through the reign. Um, 1977 for the Silver Jubilee, there was the relighting of the Armada beacons, um, and we saw something similar just um, last weekend or the weekend before for the Diamond Jubilee. And we also saw there, of course, um, Lord Stirling's gift to the Queen of a new state barge in crimson and gold. Um, this led the J Jubilee Thames pageant, and this was, of course, called Gloriana. Um, and this, of course, couldn't have escaped the notice of palace officials. I mean, everything that happened on that pageant had to go through the royal palace and be signed off by it. And so clearly they would have condoned this direct... Um, sort of exhuming, if you like, of um, Elizabethan England and the first Elizabeth. Um, and here we have the second Elizabeth um, proudly being shown it. Now, the present queen, of course, was uh, named Elizabeth after her mother. And in a sense, I suppose it was bad luck to be landed with such a name that had so, such resonant associations and obviously such achievements to live up to. So yes, there was. So she's the Queen's been sort of reluctant to um, have herself or compare herself to Elizabeth. But I think now, sixty years on, perhaps there is reason to revisit the two Elizabeths, um, whose reigns have obviously be, obviously been so dramatically different. But in many ways, I think there have been similarities between them, and I think it certainly invites a debate about how the current Queen will be remembered in the future. And we might perhaps discuss that um, after both Kate and I have spoken. Now, clearly both Queens lived and reigned during a period um, of huge change and divisions in society. And I think it's there that sort of meaningful comparisons can be made. The central role of the monarchy remains as it did, of course, in the 16th century, a focus of national unity, 
through symbol and image and ritual. And of course, we saw that again just a couple of weekends ago in the Jubilee with all that flag waving going on. Um, the role of the monarch, is, of course, is as a living embodiment of the crown, the font of honour and justice, head of the armed forces, supreme governor of the Church of England. And of course, all of these things are reflected in ceremonies such as the state opening of Parliament, the placing of the royal coat of arms in law courts, prayers for the monarch in church services, and so on. And of course, although we might not have the accession day tilts with knights paying homage to the Queen, that of course Elizabeth I um, famously had, we do have trooping the colour where the Queen surveys the troops, the Queen of course visits the regions, um, opens buildings, and of course meets with various sections of society and hosts foreign representatives at whether it be garden parties or state banquets, etc. What I want to suggest today though is that Elizabeth I really inaugurated what we'd probably described as a kind of popular monarchy with a, with a light touch, or at least a very sure touch. Elizabeth II clearly has built on that and has um, ensured that the monarchy has survived in a period of rapid, rapid change. And I think in many ways she's managed to build on um, the work that Elizabeth I, um, or the foundations that she initially set, Elizabeth, of course, the first led um, to the you know in a period of great um, of greatness, century of expansion and of empire. But of course, Elizabeth II's challenge has been to um, help a nation come to terms with its decline from empire. So there's been different challenges, but you know, linked with common um, ideas. I think. Now, of course, Elizabeth I, there she is. She reigned for 45 years. She's long been recognised as one of the great national icons. Um, she was in the top 10 of the 2002, I can't believe it was 2002, uh, such a long time ago, Greatest Britain poll. And she's also just been shortlisted in a national, um, a recent national poll that's been organised by um, Chalk Valley History Festival. And she's there up against um, Shakespeare, Alfred the Great, Winston Churchill and Charles Darwin. And I'm going to be there championing her um, against the likes of Ian Hislop, who's going to be arguing the case for Shakespeare. So, um, yeah, not intimidating at all. But anyway, before I prepare for that debate and swat up on all of Elizabeth I's achievements, I want to consider those, but also perhaps the other side of Elizabeth that we're perhaps not so familiar with, and think about some of her failures, um, or at least limitations, now, of course, Elizabeth has always been and continues to be attractive to academics, biographers and, of course, Hollywood. And this has assured uh, her celluloid immortality. New history books, historical novels, films appear almost every year. The most recent Hollywood offering, of course, which came out actually in 2007. I don't think there's been one since, has there, Elizabeth film that I've missed? No, good. Um, so this is Elizabeth the Golden Age. I don't know whether anyone's seen it. Um, but it's a very familiar portrayal of Elizabeth, of course, as national icon, Protestant heroine, celebrated for um, the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And she's there pictured in armour. Actually, there's no contemporary evidence that she did wore armour at Tilbury. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the kind of enduring idea and image that's being passed on to us. Of course, other examples of... I mean, there's a few examples of other films um, that Elizabeth has been represented in. There was obviously the 1998 Shirka Kapoor film, Elizabeth, um, and then subsequently 
Fire Over England, Private Lives of Elizabeth and um, Essex, in which Bette Davis played Elizabeth. And obviously that was a role then she repeated in The Virgin Queen. Sarah Bernhardt, Queen Elizabeth. And then, of course, Helen Mirren um, in her BBC miniseries. And Glenda Jackson, the right honourable Glenda, Glenda Jackson now, of course, um, in Elizabeth. Um, that was in 1971. So clearly Elizabeth has huge popular appeal. What I think is interesting to think about, reflect upon, is what is it that makes Elizabeth so great in terms of her historical reputation? I think viewers of those programmes um, and films and readers of those books, um, people who vote in those national polls, would probably point to her charm, her glamour. I mean, I think probably Elizabeth was the most glamorous of English monarchs. But also, of course, because of the great things that happened during her reign. It's often seen as the golden age in England's history. Domestic peace and stability, a lasting religious settlement and a flourishing of a spectacular and specifically English Renaissance culture. Obviously Shakespeare was in full creative bloom. Um, we have poets, um, we have Philip Sidney, Edmund Spencer and so on. Of course her reign also sees the foundation of the early British Empire, Francis Drake's circumnavigation of the globe and Walter Raleigh's um, sponsorship of the early colonies of America. Of course, we see the foundation of Virginia. And then, of course, there is the defeat of the Armada and that famous Tilbury speech. All together now, I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but the heart and stomach of a king. And, of course, her iconic status as a warrior queen was assured and depicted famously in the Armada portrait in which she observes victory. Um, with the background, you see the Armada fleet um, there in the background. And obviously, it was this kind of image that inspired that most recent film, um, The Golden Age. Elizabeth, through this victory over the Armada, came to be regarded as a great Protestant champion associated with English nationalism. Elizabeth represented herself, indeed, and was perceived as the personification of England and Englishness. Her successful identification of herself with the island uh, realm, most memorably in that speech at Tilbury, made her a potent symbol of national integrity and unity for generations. She was presented to the people in the words of the great poet Edmund Spencer uh, in his national epic, The Fairy Queen, as a most royal queen or empress and also the most valiant and beautiful lady. The celebration of her accession day, November the 17th, was developed into a national event with a great tournament at court to which people were admitted in great numbers. Services would be held in parish churches, the ringing of bells and so on. And we see Elizabeth's amazing dress. We see all these splendid journeys through the countryside. Um, all of this was a means to that end. Elizabeth was undoubtedly um, not only a great politician, but she was extraordinarily talented at gaining, maintaining um, and keeping popularity. She knew how to appeal to hearts and minds. And she really did. I mean, I think her genius lay in public performance. She knew how to make an impression. She combined a sort of grandeur with a rare common touch, a kind of majesty and intimacy, which I think became very potent. And it kind, the kind of um, style, I think, of rule that Elizabeth II, that can certainly be seen to be echoes um, of her Elizabethan predecessor, 
during the coronation procession, for example, um, obviously a great spectacular event, lots of planning, lots of expense, lots of pomp and pageantry. In the midst of that, we have accounts, for example, where we have a woman who gave a little gift of rosemary to the Queen. And the Queen receives it very gratefully. And later it was noticed that it was, um, you know, when the procession was finished, the little sprig of rosemary was still there in her litter alongside the great gift she'd received by the city. In the pageant, um, in one of the um, pageants as part of the procession, she received an English Bible and she kissed it, she placed it on her chest, she held it up, she wept tears of joy, she showed it to the crowd. I mean, she really played the crowd in a way that people hadn't really seen before. She also increasingly sort of introduced a note of intimacy in her encounters with her people. For example, in the summer of 1568, the um, Spanish ambassador described how in the midst of um, one of her journeys, Elizabeth ordered her carriage to be taken where the crowd was thickest and then stood up and thanked her people. And of course, this was in a period where increasingly Elizabeth's under threat, um, increasing anxiety about um, Catholic plots and so on, but she sees the importance of going out and meeting her people. All in all, Elizabeth spent about um, a tenth of her reign um, on progresses. I don't know if anyone saw the recent Griff Rees-Jones programme, did you? Quite a bizarre programme about Elizabeth through the countryside travelling in a progress. Uh, but what was really striking to me is that whole, the cavalcade of vehicles and cars and so on, and what an impression that would have made. I mean, Elizabeth, when she went on progress, would literally take the kitchen sink with her. Beds, furnishings, bedding, everything. Carts, 200, 300 carts. You can imagine what an impression this would have made as she travelled across the countryside. And the Griff Reese Jones, we didn't, he wasn't on a cart, he was actually in a Daimler, I think, or something. But he did have a whole procession of vehicles behind him. And you did get this impression of, gosh, what an amazing sight that would have been. And Elizabeth very deliberately did that. She saw the importance of being seen by her people and being shown to as wide a public as possible. And I think, therefore, in the Elizabethan progresses, we can see the birth of the royal walkabout, which, of course, Elizabeth II is so adept at performing. We also see, through rituals, um, Elizabeth becoming um, particularly acquainted with her people and sort of, um, again, showing this common touch. There were set-piece encounters such as um, on Maunday Thursday when she would wash the feet of many poor women and as many poor women as her age. So as she got older, she would, she would wash the feet of that number of women. She would distribute clothes um, and loaves and fishes and so on. So again, very physical engagement with her people. Now, of course, Elizabeth was also... Um, the queen of self-preservation uh, or self-presentation, I should say. I mean, she was kind of the most kind of cosmetically... She was the most cosmetically enhanced queen without cosmetic surgery, if you like, because, of course, she controlled her image so tightly. And the women of her bedchamber, which is the su subject of my overdue book, um, is, was, you know, they, they were tasked every day with basically putting Elizabeth's slap on. And, of course, as she got older, that became more and more problematic. It took longer, but there was a very important political reason for that. This wasn't just Elizabeth being vain, which, of course, though she was. It was also about creating an image or maintaining an image of health, of vitality and immortality. Because, of course, Elizabeth didn't marry and she didn't have an heir. 
This was not what was expected. The expectation right from the start is that she would marry and have a child. She needed to preserve the succession. One of the kind of basic must-dos of any monarch was to preserve the succession and produce an heir, and Elizabeth didn't. And so it became increasingly important to show an image of health and vitality through her reign. Both when she did meet people at court, hence the importance of her bedchamber women, and hence, of course, the uproar when in 1601, at the end of her reign, the Earl of Essex, who comes back from Ireland, just storms into her bedchamber when she's not made up. And it's like, oh my goodness. And of course, we know what happened to the Earl of Essex. So control of Elizabeth's image is abs- was absolutely central. And that wasn't just Elizabeth's image in the flesh, but of course, about how she was represented in portraiture. Elizabeth had maintained tight control over portraits. After, um, I mean, at the beginning of the reign, there was a proclamation drawn up in 1563 where it was talking about that any unofficial images that didn't show the Queen in the best possible light would be destroyed. Probably that proclamation wasn't issued, but certainly at the end of her reign in 1596, a proclamation was issued which basically said that any pictures that didn't have the Queen's approval, that hadn't been um, approved by her sergeant, um, Queen's sergeant painter, would be destroyed. And the idea that the Queen could simply not be shown to be ageing. And of course we're all (laughs) familiar with that mask of youth. And so, although Elizabeth, I mean more paintings survive of Elizabeth, I think, than any previous English monarch, But the irony is that very few of them bear really any resemblance to actually what Elizabeth looked like in real life. And of course, very few of them were actually painted with Elizabeth there directly um, in front of them. And representations of the Queen, of course, through her life become ever more elaborate and less lifelike. I mean, she becomes this kind of goddess figure. She certainly couldn't be presented as a kind of spinster queen, which of course she was. I think probably, you know, we all have probably this image of Elizabeth in our minds. I mean, and what's so striking um, to me that in an age where we're all obsessed with what goes on in people's bedrooms, that actually what goes on in Elizabeth's bedroom and the ideas of sexual immorality and scandal, which were absolutely rife in not just Elizabeth's court and in England, but across, the, across Europe, Elizabeth was, the, you know, she was a subject of derision, of complete mockery because of the alleged relationship she was having with Robert Dudley and a number of other people. And what's kind of interesting that in her, as her reputation's been forged in the years subsequently, she's not really been um, represented as as sexually immoral and promiscuous, which was one of the kind of abiding discourses that were going on at the time. But instead we think of her as the Virgin Queen, which of course was again a very deliberate creation of Elizabeth. Right at the beginning of the reign, of course, Elizabeth styled herself as young, attractive, fertile. The expectation was that she would marry and she needed to show herself to be a very healthy, potential fertile bride. And her, the health of her body was completely central to all of the marriage negotiations that did happen in Elizabeth's reign. And again, I mean, what I'm talking about in my book, one of you know, the ambassador's reports are amazing, that they're bribing the women of the bedchamber to find out what's, you know, is Elizabeth having regular periods? They're trying, they're bribing the laundry, the laundresses to find out, you know, whether there's blood on the sheets. Um, the ambassadors are b- bribing the physicians to find out whether Elizabeth has, um, you know, is healthy. And when the Queen was ill, or any rumours that she might not be able to have children were, you know, 
spread all across Europe very, very quickly. And so the idea of the Virgin Queen actually doesn't come in until the late 1570s when Elizabeth is very clearly past the point of child-bearing years. And then, of course, Elizabeth makes a virtue out of basically being a spinster queen. She makes a virtue out of her virginity and becomes the mother of the nation. And all that kind of maternal instinct that she should have, you know, used to nurture children, she uses to nurture her people. And so again, Elizabeth has this ability to kind of make good out of something that was actually really politically fatal, not only not to have an heir, but also to be seen as an unmarried woman, because that was naturally going to provoke all kinds of rumour and um, scandal. But not only that, not only does Elizabeth um, sort of represent herself in portraiture and so on as the Virgin Queen, but she also, I think, styles herself as something of a political hermaphrodite. And we see that, of course, in the Armada speech, where she talks about, you know, I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but the heart and stomach of a king. And we see this in a series of other um, speeches and portraits and poems and so on, that Elizabeth is actually claiming to be both a man, have a sort of male political body, as well as being that of a a, a queen as well. Which, again, you know, is very bold um, reinterpretation and trying to overcome the limitations of of her sex. So, of course, we know of Elizabeth's achievements, and anybody who goes to Westminster Abbey and goes to look at her tomb, the, the list of her you know, achievements are there, um, not least the religious settlement, which was, said to have, you know, which was said to have brought domestic stability after periods of, obviously, great religious change. However, there's a very different story also, of course, to tell. There's an argument, of course, that religious settlement really didn't settle anything and, of course, left a number of loose ends which remained entangled, really, for the next 200 years, if not more. And, of course, we can begin to see, as historians are now doing, looking back from the perspective of the Civil War, back through Elizabeth's reign, and seeing some of the seeds of that instability uh, being uh, sown in Elizabeth's reign. This kind of reappraisal of Elizabeth has really only started since probably the 1980s, There's a really strange preface to a book, an edited collection called Dissing Elizabeth. It's by an American academic. And she writes in the introduction how, sort of the beginning of the, I think it's sort of when she started writing the book in the 1990s, she she was ringing up a load of sort of historians saying, I want to write a book that kind of looks at Elizabeth in, you know, in a rather different way than usual, thinks about some of the limitations and perhaps failures of her reign. And she says in the introduction, I got so many no's, people just didn't want to say anything bad about Elizabeth, which is, you know, slightly bizarre. And I think she has managed to seduce people over centuries, really, both at the time in those kind of encounters with her people, um, but subsequently by, you know, historical novelists, academics and you know, people more widely. But of course the reality is, whilst we can celebrate Elizabeth for the victory over the Armada and so on, she actually presided over numerous military defeats. For example, disaster at New Haven at the beginning of her reign where the English had intervened to support the French uh, French Huguenots, the Protestants, and basically had to retreat, uh, plague, and um, really the French resolve... uh, cracked and basically the English had to surrender. And then we see a series of military failures where basically Elizabeth couldn't keep um, her commanders under control. And so, you know, we have Essex going off and doing what he wants to do, really, and not following orders. Um, And Elizabeth, therefore, not really being this kind of strong military figure that she's often, you know, celebrated for. We see it, for example, in, you know, naval expeditions of 1596, 1597, um, 
Essex is supposed to be capturing the port of Cadiz and also goes off and wants to sort of be looting and so on. And that takes precedence over strategy. And obviously in Ireland, when Essex is supposed to be going there um, to, you know, defeat the rebels and he ends up coming to terms with them. Um, so Elizabeth, as this kind of strong military figure, I think there's a, we can at least uh, revise that reputation somewhat. There's also, very briefly, just to point out, a whole different idea of Elizabeth, of course, as a persecutor. Of course, Elizabeth, you know, we think of Mary, Bloody Mary, which uh, sort of reputation I've been trying to reconsider in um, the book that I wrote some time ago. Um, and, but, of course, Elizabeth was a great persecutor herself. Hundreds of Catholics were executed during Elizabeth's reign. Um, and, as I pointed out, Elizabeth, the other kind of discourse that was going on in her reign was this whole idea of her as being promiscuous and sexually immoral. And, you know, the extent to which this was a live issue across Europe, you know, I can't overstate. And, as I pointed out, you know, it's remarkable how these negative discourses, these negative images, have played us a little part on the myth of Elizabeth as it's been passed down to us. Elizabeth, you know, rather than being remembered as a persecutor, has been regarded as being kind of personally indifferent to religion and tolerant of um, religious beliefs and the religious beliefs of her subjects. People generally remember, you know, the um, Francis Bacon's, you know, famous um, declaration that Elizabeth did not like making windows into men's souls. That's how people perhaps tr remember her, more than the fact that, you know, hundreds of Catholics were executed during her reign. And again, this whole charges of sexual immorality, those charges haven't really stuck and certainly haven't really been played upon in Hollywood films, which you imagine they might be. Um, I just wanted to, just to moving towards the end, I just wanted to sort of point to a, a description um, of Elizabeth in the last years of her reign. Um, and we can begin to see the massive gap between image and reality. The French ambassador um, is at court in 1597, and he describes in a series of dispatches audiences that he had with the ageing Elizabeth. And really, they're among the most vivid, uh, really, pen portraits that they are of her. And he describes her, he describes her face as long, thin, and very aged. Under a great reddish-coloured wig, her teeth were yellow, many of them missing, so that she could not be understood when she spoke quickly. And he goes on to talk about this really kind of nervy figure who sort of sits there fidgeting, and she's sort of twisting and untwisting her sleeves. She repeatedly, I mean, interestingly, he, de he describes how she repeatedly kind of opens the front of her robe as if she was kind of hot. I guess she was having some kind of hot flush or something. Um, and in a way, sort of being caught between trying to style herself as this kind of young queen, but at the same time actually being very kind of wrinkled and, um, you know, her teeth falling out. She also used to stuff um, handkerchiefs in her sunken cheeks to kind of, again, flesh them out and also to cover her teeth. Um, and we see a number of descriptions like that. But, of course, at that time that we see, you know, that the French ambassador there was talking about, this is how Elizabeth is being portrayed in... Um, in portraits and you can see I mean the gap between appearance and reality is absolutely massive I mean this is the rainbow portrait that actually is from the very end of Elizabeth's reign when Elizabeth is actually dying I mean she's lying on a sort of bedroom floor refusing to go to bed because she realizes that that when you know that that will be her last time she gets up once she goes to bed or she won't get up again I should say and it would be her deathbed and so there's this kind of really sad image of her lying on the floor on cushions in her private apartments and just not wanting to go to bed and finally having to kind of be 
being carried there. But as I say, this is the kind of images that were being circulated at the time. And we also have here, of course, the Ditchley portrait from the 1590s, largest portrait um, known of um, Queen Elizabeth. And she's standing there like some sort of great goddess on um, the globe, her head amongst the heavens. Um, she's standing on a, a map specifically, of course, of England. So again, the, uh, this massive gap um, between um, appearance and reality is enormous. Just to finish, I also wanted to say that as I was kind of thinking about this, I was struck by the report of one foreign ambassador um, who said this. He said, I cannot pass over in silence the fact that at the last audience, I mean, this is when Elizabeth, this is 1595, so very, towards the end of her life, I cannot pass over in silence the fact that the last audience, Her Majesty came forward a few paces to meet me and that she did not sit down. She stood for longer than a full hour by the clock, conversing with me, which is, is astounding for such a queen of such eminence and, he added, of such great age. And for me, I, I was just reminded by the commentary of which um, I probably was part of the um, Thames River pageant when everybody was going about how, you know, she stood for the whole time for three or four hours and what a symbol of endurance and strength and, you know, she lived up to the occasion. And similarly, you know, we have a moment right at the end of Elizabeth's reign, 1601, which was actually, people sort of think of it as her last speech to Parliament. It wasn't, but it's been described as the golden speech. And again, you know, she manages to capture this sort of knowing that her end was near she manages to make this kind of brilliant speech that, of course, has gone down uh, or has become so central to the forging of her reputation. She says, To be a king and wear a crown is a thing most glorious to me. For myself, I was never so much initial with the potent name of a king or royal authority, uh, but royal authority of a queen, and as delighted that God had made me his instrument to maintain his truth and glory and this kingdom from dishonour, damage, tyranny and oppression. And though you may have had and may have many mightier and wiser princes sitting in this sea, yet you never had nor shall have any that will love you better. So this kind of touch of humility there at the end, which again, you know, I think we probably can reflect on from um, the current Queen's um, tributes or her response to the Jubilee. And again, we have Elizabeth pointing out her, herself or styling herself as this kind of political hermaphrodite, this kind of image or rhetoric that she was both male and female, had masculine and feminine attributes. By the end of the reign, of course, Gloriana's image was um, faltering, but such was the control over representations of her image. But this is the kind of thing that we see being churned out. It's not until after her death, we've got another, we've got the ermine portrait there, and of course this is the coronation portrait, which was actually painted right at the end of the reign, even though of course it was there to um, represent the coronation. This is a sort of image that we have right after Elizabeth's reign, where we begin to see a, you know, a representation more akin to reality. This kind of portrait wasn't allowed to be circulated at the time. And of course, this is a, an image from 1610. So what are we left with in, our terms, in terms of Elizabeth? Well, I think we can say that Elizabeth was a consummate survivor, perhaps less a great achiever. She was, in many ways, uh, fortunate to have the benefit of her sister, of Mary, who, of course, she didn't want to acknowledge ever during her reign. But, of course, Mary, in many ways, had set the... Uh, or blazed a trail for female monarchy and, you know, style, in many ways encountered the kind of hurdles that Elizabeth then didn't have to go over herself. Uh, Mary had established a kind of political equality that Elizabeth was able to benefit from. However, I think, you know, perhaps when we sort of think about Elizabeth in terms of her um, reputation and perhaps what Elizabeth II can borrow from Elizabeth, I think we can say that the first Elizabeth 
probably can make the claim to be the first English ruler to make image the very essence of her authority, that placed monarchy under a spotlight and on a stage where um, it became increasingly important, the presentation, performance and popularity. And I think it's that really that perhaps is Elizabeth's most potent legacy to her successor. Thank you. That was Anna Whitelock. Anna is Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at Royal Holloway, University of London. Her most recent book is Mary Tudor, England's First Queen, which is published by Bloomsbury. Anna is also a frequent contributor to BBC History magazine, and readers might recall her article on Elizabeth I's anniversary celebrations in our June issue. So let's return to Tower of London now as Kate Williams takes to the podium to reflect on the life of Elizabeth II. Well, I'm so I'm so thrilled to be here talking about two Elizabeths. You know, uh, you know, impossible act to follow after Anna, and that's a, such a fascinating talk. It gave me so much food for thought. And what I was thinking about was how much, as Anna was saying, Elizabeth II, despite um, saying. Uh, yes, she wasn't blessed with husband and children, you know, in her early reign. How much Elizabeth II has borrowed from Elizabeth I. Um, when uh, Anna's marvellous showing of that diptych portrait of the, the fabulous one of Eliz- Elizabeth I in that great big white dress, the great big kind of white studded dress, the jewels studding, I mean, they're like little jewels, aren't they, studding each bit of the dress. I thought that outfit, which is so iconic about Elizabeth I, completely reminded me of the Queen's actual outfit on the diamond flotilla, the white, the studding. You know, just as Anna was saying, she was on the barge like an Elizabethan person, dressed like Elizabeth I, and the Queen hardly ever wears white. I'm, I'm not... I'm rather better on royal history than I am on royal fashion, but it's, even I know that the Queen prefers blue and pink and colours like that. So she was wearing white, and she completely evoked Elizabeth I there, going down the barge. And I think she's increasingly aware of how she has a lot to borrow from Elizabeth I as her reign progresses. I think as she grows older, she's accepting how much she is like Elizabeth I. And there's a lot, as Anna was saying, that we can borrow from her. The uh, the use of image is absolutely crucial. But I think our queens in general are better at proclaiming their image, at using their image, than our kings. Victoria was a great one of promoting herself as this middle-class queen in her bonnet and her black dress and looking very plain and no pomp compared to the pomp and excess of George IV and William IV that just made people angry. And Elizabeth II has made this very careful, very careful showing of herself as, as, as moving a, a line between glamour and also humility so there was no particular gold excess and bling over the diamond jubilee weekend we saw quite a snazzy gold outfit on monday night but in general on on tuesday the actual great celebration of, of her accession of her coronation it was quite a comparatively plain outfit and i think that absolutely keys in with what we expect of a queen in austerity britain and also, the, as Anna was saying, Elizabeth I was a great tourer. In fact, no one really toured again until Victoria, and, and then everyone went quiet again on the touring front until Elizabeth II, who is our most travelled monarch. Elizabeth II, also, I was particularly inter- interested in what Anna was saying about the political hermaphrodite, because she too is something of a political hermaphrodite. She 
her father, uh, George VI, her mother, the Queen Mother, then Queen Elizabeth, her father was, was um, a rather nervous speaker, but as we all saw in the marvellous King's speech, he mastered it and became a, a very good speaker, almost to rival his brother, Edward VIII. And her mother, but he was often rather irascible. And um, on the well, South African tour, he said, I'd like to shoot them. And the Queen had to say to him, but Bertie, darling, you can't shoot them all. And, <laughs> And so she was the kind of, you know, the, the oil over troubled waters and she'd go and shake hands and smile. And as William Shawcross told us in his biography, she invented the royal wave. Um, vital, vital invention for, for modern life. And so she had the waving and the smiling and he had the speechifying. And it's almost as if, as if Elizabeth II had com- combined both the qualities of her parents both the speech, the speeches, which have been, she has been an incredibly successful speaker. We think of after the death of Diana in 1997 and the uh, the level of feeling against her. And she came on and gave this address to the nation and said, as a mother and as a grandmother, and and completely changed the public mood, just merely addressing the nation very briefly. She's a great speaker and also terribly good at the smiling and the shaking hands and the waving. But one of the key ways in which I think Elizabeth II and Elizabeth I have have in common is the fact that they neither of them were meant to be queen. Both of them had these very insecure child, childhoods and neither of them at first were meant to be queen. It's terribly touching, you know, when you, you, know, you read the work about Elizabeth I that after her mother was was executed she was demoted from princess to to lady and that's that's what she became and elizabeth ii was rather the different she was born into this rather cheery happy family in which you know life was focused around running around after the dogs and playing with corgis and then was catapulted when she was 10 into the role of heiress presumptive by the abdication of edward the so she was born in 1926 in april 1926 um, April the 21st, 1926, and here she is with her parents, the Duke and Duchess of York. They were, they were the, he was the second son of George V, and very nervous, not a particularly um, academic high flyer, perhaps it doesn't matter for royalty. In fact, he once graduated 66th out of 67th at Dartmouth Naval College. So um, I wonder whether actually the, he was actually 67 and they just brought, they, they made someone go bottom just because it would look too bad to have the prince being bottom. But he, like so many of our royal predecessors, went to Cambridge anyway. Um, and he was a very shy, <laughs> he was a very shy man, a very nervous man, and fell head over heels after the war in, with Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, this young girl from a large family in Scotland. At the time, 1919, Virginia Nicholson's written this splendid book about it. So many young women had no idea of the man they might meet. They, they knew they were never going to marry, ever, because they were going to be spinsters. She has this great story in which a headmistress, you know, stands in front of all the girls and says, you know, most of you girls are going to be spinsters. They don't think about marriage. You have to think about something else to do. Young ladies like Elizabeth Bowes Lyon kept on thinking about marriage because they could do. They were, she was pretty and sparkling and vivacious and full of fun and men flocked around her the left the left the last few men that there were flocked around her and Bertie fell desperately in love with her but she repeatedly turned him down her family were not traditional courtiers in fact they weren't very keen on him at all there's this great letter that she writes to her friend when she writes Bertie is coming to stay with us this weekend ghastly not a great start, but he really had to battle for her. And the third time he asked her to marry him, she finally agreed. And he was 
absolutely over the moon. And the birth of their first child, Elizabeth, was quite thrilling. She was born by um, caesarean section. And in those days, of course, royals didn't go to hospital, heaven forbid. So they, they set up an operation to perform a C-section in her house in Mayfair, which really, I think, takes, takes home birth to a whole new level, really. And this was why... You know, apparently C-section babies are a lot cuter than the other babies because they don't have to get squashed. So she was a terribly cute and perfect baby and Queen Mary was completely delighted by her. I do hope you and Papa are as delighted as we are to have a granddaughter or would you sooner have another grandson? Albert, Duke of York, wrote to Queen Mary. I know Elizabeth wants a daughter. And there she is with a rather cute little, cute little face there, smiling away. And the Queen Mother... Queen Elizabeth, uh, the Duchess of York was delighted by her little girl and they petted her endlessly and so did Queen Mary and King George. King, King George at the fifth and Queen Mary were very strict parents. Uh, they, right until their children were adults, they couldn't speak until they were spoken to and they had to back out of the room but they fell in love with the little girl in a way that they didn't fall in love with any of their other grandchildren. The, the two sons of Princess Mary, uh, the George V, just sat there looking grumpy, going, they make a lot of noise. But the little girl was everyone's favourite. When she was older, she used to ride George V around, sit on top of him, and pull his ears and, and pretend he was a horse. The Archbishop of Canterbury was rather shocked when he walked into the room and saw the king being ridden by the young princess and her pulling his ears and calling him Big Ears. Um, <laughs> And uh, she also called him Grandpa England, which was adopted by the press. So she was a conscientious little girl who kept her nursery spotlessly tidy. When she wasn't uh, riding around on her granddad's back and pulling his ears and laughing at him being called Big Ears, she was tidying up. She is one of our tidiest monarchs, I think, in history. She loved tidying, and she, she was so tidy that, um, unlike me, uh, she used to make... It used to, panic her that her shoes weren't neatly arranged by the side of her bed so she used to get out of bed over and over again until the shoes were perfectly lined up and she was so thrifty and organized that she used to when she had a present to take the wrapping not all that ripping wrapping paper off like well i do and small children do and i still do so she used to, used to arrange you smooth it all out and pile it up into piles so she would have been the most frustrating person ever to pay past the parcel with obviously because she'd always be sorting it out except that you know as a royal she'd have to win and I love the early pictures of her. You can really see you know, what, a, what a cute little girl she was. And there's something, I think, also more carefree here because she was literally born into this family just to have fun. Her mother and father did not believe in the value of education at all. Her father had been terribly unhappy as, as a, as a schoolboy. As I was saying, he, he wasn't the world's great ac greatest academic. And also he was badly bullied. In fact, one cadet, actually, one day he was walking down the corridor and he saw this kind of bundled up thing like a chrysalis in the ceiling and realised that they tied up Bertie in a hammock and, um, and he wasn't even shouting he'd just given up by then so he was massively bullied and he hated school the Duchess, the Duchess of York Elizabeth Bowes Lyon was no better she didn't believe in education because it wasn't good for girls and it wouldn't help them find a husband as she said my sister and I only had governesses and we married well, I married very well you know, what else do you need? She absolutely didn't believe that girls should make their own way. And their aim for their, for their little Elizabeth and later Margaret was that they should have a happy childhood full of happy memories followed by happy marriages. That's what they wanted for them. And things, didn't, things seemed as if that was going to be the case until, of course, everything changed in 1936. As a little girl, she received this first governess, Miss Marion Crawford, in 1933, a young Scotswoman with decided ideas. She'd been training as an educational psychologist in Scotland, and her aim was just to come down and have a holiday job with the little girls. Instead, she ended up staying 
a whole her, until until after Elizabeth was married. Then she was sent away, and then she wrote her memoirs, The Two Princesses, which caused a, a scandal in the palace, which caused much upset for Elizabeth and her mother, and they never forgave Miss Crawford. But Miss Crawford turned up to teach little Elizabeth, who was then who was by then nearly seven and hadn't had a governess by then. So you can see, you know, rather lax attitude to education, and and, and also little Margaret, who'd been born in 1930. Um, she turned up and. She went in, she, the way she went, she went into Elizabeth's room to greet her and she said she'd expected a very spoilt little girl. And instead she turned up there and there was a little girl, Elizabeth w at seven, was sitting in her bed and she was pretending to ride her horses. And Miss Crawford said, good evening. And she said, I'm sorry I can't talk now. I'm taking my horses round the park. I take them twice around the park before I go to bed to exercise them. And then she had to negotiate a very difficult corner. And then she said to Miss Crawford, why, why have you such short hair? Miss Crawford said, it's the fashion. Elizabeth turned back, carried on riding her horses, and then said, are you going to stay with us? Will you play with us tomorrow? And that was it. She, uh, you know, she was incredibly decisive about whether she liked or didn't like someone, as we later see with Prince Philip, fell in love with him at 13, never wavered or looked at another man. And I love these pictures of her as such a carefree little girl. They had two houses. They had their townhouse in Piccadilly, which they saw was very modest, but you and I might not agree, considering they had 25 bedrooms and a ballroom. Uh, not quite a modest townhouse. So they had this townhouse in Piccadilly and a royal lodge in Windsor, which had belonged to George IV, fallen into rack and ruin, and they... Um, they converted it and improved it. It was a present from George V because in the Depression, the Great Depression, the, uh, the royal family had to be seen to economise, so the Duke had to give up his horses and what he got back was the Royal Lodge. Uh, his brother, the Prince of Wales, future Edward VIII, was told he had to take less private jet flights to the, to the south of France. Um, the, uh, the Duchess of York herself had her own ideas about how to beat the Depression in Britain. She said that she thought women should stop working because women don't need to eat meat and they can live on a few buns every day and men need meat so they have to work. And she also thought that perhaps she could have weaker cocktails. Miss Crawford was chosen because she would be cheap and in the 1930s that's what the royal family needed. They are incredibly affectionate parents. They, the Duke really wished to dote on his little girl. And he was, in those days, he really didn't have many public engagements. It was very different to a royal member now. His public engagements were rather low, so he had a lot of free time to do things like make a whole set of, of, of needlepoint chairs uh, with his own embroidery. And so every day they spent a lot of time, by the 1930s standards, with the little girls. They had an hour with them in the morning and an hour with them at bedtime. This doesn't seem a lot of time with the, your parents to us, but to the, to the upper middle classes, that seemed like a very close family and he seemed you know an excessively hands-on father and they were delighted by the little girls they lived together in Piccadilly and they played games all day and enjoyed themselves and played hopscotch what there wasn't very much of was lessons when you look at Elizabeth and Margaret's timetable Margaret didn't join the schoolroom until she was eight it's rather uh, worrying really because they literally have an hour and a half of formal lessons every morning and that's it and the rest of the time it's playing outside and lying down and drinking orange juice and in those hour and a half lessons they were often interrupted because it was in the morning by the dentist Elizabeth had quite severe braces by the dentist by the dressmaker by the hairdresser by um, their mother just popping in to say hello so the, le the lessons were very disruptive as a child simply because the Duke and Duchess believed that education was a um, was held women back and made them less appealing in the eyes of men in particular so that 
if even but Elizabeth herself was much more academically able than her parents. I mean, you know, perhaps it wouldn't be too hard to be better than those two. So she was much more academically able, and she desired more learning, and she was always asking Miss Crawford for more learning. But what she but she didn't. She was a naughty schoolgirl too. Normally she was a good girl, but she came once she was very naughty, and there was a a French mistress came to teach them verbs, and Elizabeth got so bored with the rote learning that she got hold of the inkwell and turned it over onto her head and sat there with ink all over her face. And I think that's typical of the young Elizabeth. She was so angry, so furious. A lot of other children might have thrown something at the governess, but instead she threw something at herself. So she always keeps it hidden. She was everyone's favourite, her father's favourite, even King George's favourite, even Queen Mary's favourite. Her sister, Princess Margaret, didn't really get much of a look-in by comparison. No one had much time for her, comparatively. Everyone wants to play with her, the, the nursemaid, her parents. The Duke and Duchess often called themselves we four, but it was really very often we three. And Princess Margaret was incredibly spirited and naughty, and I think she was already rather spirited right from a, a little baby, but I think the idea that she'd been constantly excluded meant that she pushed herself back in, and she was often rather impatient and cross. So Margaret came in and was kind of like an explosion of fun and, and excitement, and she was petted and, you know, full of, by, all, by, the, by the courtiers and, and was, you know, even worse at education than her sister. And she was so naughty, and she used to do loads of naughty things and blame it on Cousin Halifax. This is what I wish I had learned. So Cousin Halifax was the one who did everything. So if she was late, Cousin Halifax had kept her talking, and if there was a spillage, it was Cousin Halifax. It was, he'd always been the naughty one. But Elizabeth was very, responsible, was very responsible towards Margaret, and increasingly it became the way that she articulated her own fears by saying one had to protect Margaret. So later in the coronation she said, oh, well, I hope Margaret will behave herself because it's very long time for her. And in the Second World War she said, we mustn't talk about battles, it'll only worry Margaret. She was very protective of her, and even though she was only four years older than her, behaved like she was much older than her, ten years older than her. She was a great favourite of Queen Mary, who was much more informal with her granddaughter than her children had been, and she was also, you know, she was incredibly popular with the people. Even though they tried to keep her out of the public eye, she was super popular. They had, you know, Madame Tussauds images of her, there was Princess Elizabeth Land in Antarctica. She was the most popular little child in the whole, in the, in the whole of Britain, and certainly at times in the whole world. At eight, when she, her first public appearance, aged eight at the wedding of her uncle, Prince George, Duke of Kent, this was the beginning of a constant obsessive following of Elizabeth, what she was wearing and what she was doing. So much so that there became a fascin an obsession with the idea that Margaret was not getting any attention because she was deaf and dumb. So when on the Silver Jubilee of George V, he picked her up and waved her into the crowds, a rather a bit like Michael Jackson, but, you know, waving the baby out of the window, because he wanted to show the fact that she wasn't deaf and dumb. The idea was that if the king was cuddling her, then she couldn't be um, deaf and dumb, of course, like his brother, Do his brother John had been um, mentally impaired. The people were so excited by her, they, they gave her this marvellous house, um, Bark. My father is Welsh and would, would, would weep at my pronunciation of it, but the, but the little cottage in Welsh, which um, Andrew Marr showed in his marvellous uh, programme about the Queen, he actually got in and interviewed Princess Eugenie in there. And there they are, this cottage that was given to them by the people of Wales. Everything in it was three-quarters size. It was to advertise Welsh craftsmanship, and it was in Windsor Castle. And they had little washing powders, little sofas, little curtains. Everything was absolutely so small, and it was kept intact until the Second World War, in which there was a great appeal for aluminium in 1940. And, you know, Lady Reedsdale put out this appeal for aluminium, and um, 
people across the across the country gave aluminium in bits of beds, bits of saucepans. Some people gave in their uh, false limbs, and the girls donated their aluminium tea set. And the idea was, with this aluminium could all all make a Spitfire. So the girls are very thrilled that one day that their aluminium tea set became a Spitfire. So the obsession with her image and the importance of her image became increasingly evident to the royal family. So they began to have her painted more, have her sculpted more, and this. In this sculpting, the sculpting here, really showing the difference. With Anna was saying about the difference between appearance and reality, with, with trying to make Elizabeth I look younger, while well, trying to make Elizabeth II look look older. This was the constant refrain of her portraiture, really, until she became a mature woman. It's just a little girl here. She is much, you know, this 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 this, this sculpt here looks to me like she's kind of twenty five when she's actually only a little girl. She's only nine here. She's only a little one. But they're always trying to make her look more grown up. The Queen, of course, loves her corgis, loves her dogs. She adores them, and it's exactly the same for corgis in her lifetime, um, in her childhood. The Queen Mother was, had this, had this favourite corgi called Dookie. The first corgi was, was called Dookie, no, Jane, and then there was Dookie, and then the, the Queen had a corgi on her own 18th birthday, loved him so much, she took him on honeymoon with her and wrote to her mother, we're having a lovely honeymoon, Susan is, slept by the, Susan is sleeping by the fire. Uh, they loved they loved the dogs and the dookie was the naughtiest corgi ever he bit everyone he bit every courtier bit every politician he bit really everyone apart from elizabeth and the queen mother but they all had to pretend that they loved him they had endless dogs and horses and she said herself that when i grow up i want to marry a man and live in the country with lots of horses and lots of dogs they said to her when she was little would you like to be queen and she said well i would and i would make sure that Ponies always have a rest on Sundays, and that I would never let anyone dock their pony's tail. That was what she would do as queen. You know, she was a keen rider, and she inherited her love from horses from George V, who, when he, she was a tiny girl, would take her round to see the horses. And what's, that's fascinating to me, that her family and George V and Queen Mary were so preoccupied by her as a little girl when she was when she was only young, because it was very possible that her mother might have had a little boy, but simply it seemed to everyone that the, the Elizabeth was the, was the ideal child, even though she was the first female heiress presumptive to have a sibling. Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, of course, did have a sibling, but, but not, she was kind of dead by then. And, and, uh, and Victoria had no sibling. And so there, when, when, Elizabeth the, when, when the abdication occurred and Elizabeth became heiress presumptive, there was a complete, there was a large investigation as to whether or not she had more precedence to the throne than her sister because, they, because it seems to us absolutely common sense that she did but not to them they had they weren't really sure whether she did or she didn't because there was no precedent for a woman horrors inheriting the throne so she so she continued with her horses and the, her parents tried very hard to give her a normal childhood and one of their efforts was by the buckingham was through the buckingham palace pack first of all it was the Piccadilly pack and then the Buckingham Palace pack of brown of, of guides and Margaret was a brownie also. They used to um, run around the palace grounds and play semaphore in the palace corridors and go, <coughs> go camping outside and making sausages. So it was a kind of normality, uh, but also at the same time, you know, you had to let Elizabeth win. Well, everything changed in 1936. In 19, it was the year, everyone calls it, of three kings. At the end of 1935, George V was growing iller and iller and died at the beginning of 1936. His death hastened by his doctor, who um, felt it's amazing to read his, let, you know, his, his letters, his diaries. You know, they go, well, you know, 
you know, he's really, you know, George V, he's really hanging on to life. Um, I know, I'll, I'll, I'll inject him with a, a quarter of a gram of morphine, uh, a half a gram of cocaine, and, uh, and, and some more laudanum. So I'll inject all of that to try and hurry it on, and hurry on the, hurry on the death. And it, and it wasn't because he was in pain, he, wasn't, he was in a coma, he wasn't in particular distress. They hurried on the death so it would, it would make sure it would coincide with the, with the more fitting morning newspapers. It would coincide with the publication of the Times in the morning so it wouldn't have to be publicised in one of those awful rags like the Evening Standard but by happening in the evening. So they literally killed him at the last minute so he could actually get into the Times. And he died at the beginning of 1936. His son, Edward VIII, the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII, became king, who'd already famously refused to marry, was already desperately in love with Wallace Simpson, the glamorous, twice-divorced American, who, um, who was not only was fun and exuberant, she argued back to him, and she had no time for royal protocol. In fact, she said that she thought Balboa would be enlivened by a few can-can girls and, a few, and a, some double-decker sandwiches. She tried. He was so obsessed with Wallace Simpson, he had eyes for no one else. In the, in the summer, rather than summering in Balmoral, as kings normally did, he went off on the Dalmatian coast on an amazing tour of, of love with her. And the press were holding back by this point. They, they were too nervous. The British public were too royalist. They were too nervous about actually publicising it. But the American press were talking about it quite intensely. And it was only, it was only a matter of time before the English press found out. Finally, the government... You know, Stanley Baldwin, poor old Stanley Baldwin, who'd hoped by this point to kind of see out his premiership in a, in a sleepy way and then retire, got confronted by this. Finally, Baldwin went to him, told him he had to either give her up or, 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 or give up the throne. And after a long impasse, a long discussion, endless toing and backing and throwing, and the royal family in, in, in serious disarray, finally he decided to abdicate the throne. And on the 10th of December, 1936, little Elizabeth was at home in her house in Piccadilly and heard the, heard the crowds cheering outside, God save the king. And she finally said to a, a footman, she said, well, what's happening? And they said, oh, your uncle has abdicated and your father is king. And, and she went to tell Margaret the news and Margaret said, oh, does that mean you're going to be queen now? And Elizabeth said, yes, I suppose it does. And that was it. She, she then promptly sat down and she sat down with a piece of paper and wrote down her notes in the swimming lesson they'd had that morning and wrote abdication day on the top. And that to me is the quintessence of Elizabeth. The way in which, uh, as, which, which, was, which has served her very well throughout her reign but not so well around the death of Diana that you respond to distressing and worrying and unhappy events by simply carrying on as normal. You don't let them in, you don't let the emotions in, you just carry on as normal. And that's exactly what she did. There was much talk that her father was going to be a failure, he was too feeble to sit through the coronation ceremony, and he, he himself was dreading the lack of popularity that might ensue because Edward VIII had been an incredibly popular king despite his dalliance with Mrs Simpson. But the coronation itself set for the same day as Edward VIII had been, the coronation itself was an incredible success. And Elizabeth herself attended, along with Margaret, and was one of the first modern monarchs to watch her father being crowned. She sat with her mother, Queen Mary, and um, looked, it was, it looked through the prayer book and was rather bored by it. She said to Queen Mary, she thought it was rather boring, but she was shocked that Queen Mary couldn't remember more of her own coronation because she thought it was a rather important day. But I guess... It must be rather like your wedding day or something. Queen Mary said it passed in a blur. 
the great moment on the balcony, there's, you know, they almost look like they're wearing toy crowns to me, but of course these crowns are just, you know, weighed down by diamonds and emeralds and, you know, all these jewels that we've stolen from across the world quite enthusiastically. And the, these ones just look like they've made them themselves, but they are, they were, it was this incredible celebration of not only the new king, but also family life. It was repeatedly said that, well, they didn't think much of the king, they weren't sure about him, but the fact he had these two little princesses who couldn't be more perfect, who couldn't be more, this perfect image of the family, really played to the public demands. Over and over again, the pictures were sold all over the country, the coronation regalia, the coronation celebrations. We saw lots of... Um, uh, masks and crowns and flags for sale last weekend. It was nothing compared to the coronation. So the, the, the two princesses were suddenly incredibly important. They were suddenly the daughters of the king and Elizabeth was the next, was the next queen. In 1939, of course, everything changed. 1936, the problem was with Edward and Mrs. Simpson is that everyone was paying far too much attention to Wallace and her glamour and not enough attention to the rising anger, the rising um, aggression in Germany. And by 1939, war broke out. The two princesses were stowed away somewhere secret, which actually was Windsor Castle, so not really that secret after all. The parents continued to live in Buckingham Palace, um, overrun by rats every time it got bombed, and the Queen herself was completely indomitable. The, the King kept his own pistol in case when they went down to the shelter he had to defend himself. The Queen also practised um, shooting practice, and she used to, in the... In the um, in the uh, in the in the Buckingham Palace, which is why Hitler said she was he, he completely feared her effect on national morale. She practiced shooting so gaily that when there were more rats after a bombing, she said she'd use them as target practice instead. So they were completely indomitable in the face of war, and the two little girls had to be incredibly brave as well, even though they were separated from their parents with Miss Crawford in Windsor Castle, there despite the air raids. And there were an incredible amount of air raids around Windsor Castle. About 70 bombs were dropped in total, the, the windows used to shake, and the, the Queen herself, the Princess herself, of course, heard Dunkirk. There was one day when there was incredible explosions, and it was because Dunkirk was happening, and they could hear it that far away in Windsor Castle, and they'd also seen the appeal for the boats to come out and help people, to come out and collect people from Dunkirk, which, of course, as Anna told us all so well, participated in the Diamond Jubilee flotilla. So the princesses and Prince, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret were vital to national morale during this period, and particularly, finally, in 1940, when the palace finally allowed them to broadcast to the children of America saying, and, the, and North America and Canada saying how much they sympathised with them being locked away and missing, leaving, the, leaving their parents. But most of the time in the war they spent alone without their parents, but Elizabeth herself also, she had one thing to um, remember, and that was her adoration of Prince Philip. She met him just before the war broke out. They were touring Dartmouth Naval College, and she, he, he came out to, uh, to play games with her. They played toy trains, and then he said, let's go outside and jump nets. He was 18, very tall, was marvellous at jumping nets, and she fell in love with him at the absolute moment. And after that, they went for tea, and he ate a banana split, and she just sat there staring at him, eating a banana split. And the banana split moment was the moment when she fell in love with him forever. And despite her parents not being very keen on him, but they just thought she was a little girl. To, to, him, to them, he was too German, he was poor, and they, and they would prefer her to marry an English aristocrat. It didn't matter. She continued to be preoccupied by him. The, as the war was coming to an end in April 1945, she began working for the ATS and became the most 
this is a, the most photographed moment of her life. This famous photo was on the cover of Time magazine. She was a mechanic uh, learning how to, how to drive and, and uh, mend cars. And she also practiced by whizzing up and down Pall Mall, which I don't think many of the mechanics managed to do. And Princess Margaret would always tease her that she didn't know much about these kind of things. On her first day, they said to her, can you, can you handle a spanner, Mum? And she said, no. And they said, have you ever seen a spanner, Mum? And she said, no. So <laughs> she soon had to learn. Over and over again, she was photographed. It was this incredible, it was a real incredible last boost to, to uh, the war work effort. The, the king had really restrained, he want, didn't want to, to really to work in the, war, in the industries until, uh, until very late, really, because he wished, wished for her to be sheltered. It was her desire she'd do so. She knew that Prince Philip was working overseas, was serving in the Navy. She wanted to serve as well. Well... Prince Philip came back after the end of the war. He was in, in the Asian theatre. He returned and began to court her in earnest. And finally, it seemed clear to everyone that they simply couldn't... They were simply had to be married. But the royal family were very against him. They thought he was, as I was saying, poor and rather, rather, rather dubious, rather loose. His mother had gone mad. His father had lots of affairs. And... Um, uh, also, horrors, he only had one pair of pyjamas. This is what they found when he went to Balmoral to stay, because they, they apparently, this is what happens when you go to Balmoral, um, we'll all know when we go, um, they unpack your bag for you and look at what you've got, the servants. And he took, he, his bag was unpacked and the news was put about and got back to the royal family that he only had one pair of pyjamas and one pair of slippers. Kel her. Uh. <laughs> so he wasn't, so he was unpopular, but they... The royal family would prefer to marry an English aristocrat. They preferred her to wait. Her father was incredibly possessive of her. He hadn't spent much of the time in the war with her. He wanted her to himself. But she was determined to marry Prince Philip, and so he, he, they, they had to give in. And he tried everything to separate them. But in, in 1947, they were finally engaged, and the wedding was set for November 1947. There was much talk that perhaps it could be a smaller wedding, you know, because of austerity Britain. Instead, as William Winston Churchill puts it, it was going to be a splash of colour on the hard road we had to travel. And the public were utterly thrilled by the wedding. The, 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 the gifts were laid out all over St James's Palace. And there was all sorts of things. They got a cinema, they got a, a racehorse from the Aga Khan. And my favourite gift they got, oh, they got 3,000 to clothing to tokens from, uh, to, to counter rationing, but of course had to send these back because the transfer of clothing tokens was illegal. Uh, 300 pairs of nylon stockings for the Queen from ladies of Britain. My favourite gift they got was uh, two, pairs of, two pieces of burnt toast, um, which was because these two ladies were listening to the radio when they were, the engagement announcement was made, and they were so excited when they heard that, that, that Prince Philip and Princess Elizabeth were going to be married that they promptly burnt their toast, and they thought they'd perhaps pack it up in an envelope and send it to the princess herself. <laughs> what a present. Well... It was a delightful celebration. The princess commissioned her own dress covered in these symbols of rebirth bo borrowed from Botticelli's Birth of Venus, uh, evoking rebirth. It was a suggestion that this was the, the future of the monarchy outside of what had been the long, hard roads of the, of the Second World War. And there's much said at the moment about William and Kate stealing the the, the, the glamour, the luster from the Queen. And that's possibly true, but I think also that she did the same herself. So it often happens that the younger ones starts to grab the, grab the luster. King George VI had been a great king throughout the war, but people wanted to put the war years behind them, and they began to invest more and more in this lovely young princess and her husband. And she knew that and was evoking this with a dress covered in, in images of the Primavera. And um, 
which was the, the great problem of the dress was the silk. Uh, there was a large amount of questions as to where, where, had, where, where the, were the provenance of the worms for the dress. Uh, could they be, could they be um, Japanese or even worse, Italian worms? Shocking. Luckily, they found, were found to be Chinese worms, which is a new, neutral country, so the dress could go ahead. The wedding itself was a, a, a great celebration. The night before the wedding, it was really after, the, after this, the long war years, it was the chance for European royalty to get together and have a knees up. The night before the wedding, uh, King George VI led a giant conga of, of the European royalty through the state apartments, which must have been great fun. And everyone got so excessively drunk. Um, uh, uh, the Duke of Devonshire and, and, the, and the Maharaja got into a punch-up. And um, <laughs> another Maharaja... And uh, no, Jan, Jan Smuts came up to Queen Mary and said, in terms of queens, you are the big potato, all the other queens are little potatoes. What he meant by that, I don't know, but it could have just been too much coronation chicken. So they all got, it was a kind of huge celebration, and after the, after the wedding, the, the prince and princess set off for their honeymoon, which was going to be in, um, beginning in Scotland. They took the corgis with them, you know, the prince had to know what, was, what his married life was going to be like. Love me, love my corgi. They were so popular that when they tried to go to church, they went to church and people used everything to try and get up and look through the windows, including a sideboard and four chairs. And after they'd gone, they dashed in to try and sit in the same place. The obsession, the popularity of the, of the prince and princess was so excessively so. As her father was growing increasingly ill, he was exhausted, he was old, and also wouldn't give up his passion for smoking. She and Prince Philip took on a lot of their, a lot of their duties, touring the Commonwealth repeatedly. The, the George, George VI was growing iller and iller, and it was becoming increasingly obvious to the rest of the people that he was dying. But the Queen, the royal family, the Queen Mother, they simply couldn't see it that way. And so, when he, when he, instead of when he couldn't go on a Commonwealth tour of Africa, the Queen herself, the Princess Elizabeth herself, took over the role, and she and Prince Philip set off to Kenya to start off their, the great big tour of Africa that the, the King was going to undertake. They were staying... That night, in, on, the, on, the, on the 5th of February, they went up to stay on a, a hunting lodge. And this is a special hunting lodge that you could see, you could sit in this kind of tree, tree house and look down and over a watering hole and see all the bison and monkeys and all the things coming, coming in and drinking. And at the t back in England, George VI, was, he went out hunting. He said to his valet, let's go hunting again to, to, tomorrow. He went to bed. At midnight, someone saw him adjusting his window. At 7 o'clock next morning, when the valet came in with his tea, he was dead. So we don't know exactly what time he died in between 12 o'clock and 7 o'clock. So we don't know exactly what time Elizabeth was queen. She's one of the few people we don't. And she's also one of the few people who was out of the country when she became queen. The last one before her was George I, and he had the excuse that he was a lecturer of Hanover at the time. She was suddenly queen, and she didn't know. No one knew. They, as her lady-in-waiting said, because of where we were at the time, we were some of the last people in the world to know. The only reason why they knew was because the Queen's secretary happened to be at lunch at a nearby hotel and saw a journalist looking completely traumatised. And he said to him, well, what's wrong? And the journalist said, the king's dead. And he said, ah, oh, right. And he ran back to the lodge and got Prince Philip's equerry to steal the radio from behind Prince Philip, where Prince Philip was sitting. And kind of, so he crawled along the floor and, nipped and reached up, nicked the radio, crawled back again before Prince Philip noticed. And then tuned in really quietly to the, to the British, to BBC, and heard the news, and then went to tell Prince Philip that he had to tell his wife that she was queen. So it was Prince Philip's job to tell his wife that, he was, that she was queen. She flew back, 
first met Winston Churchill, her first Prime Minister, the great statesman Churchill. He was devastated at the loss of George VI. He'd adored him. He was, he, he was you know, always theatrical. They told him of the news. He was in bed working. And he suddenly began weeping, bursting into tears, saying, I can't work with her. She's only a child. But he got over it. Later, by the end of the year, he said, that was February. By the end of the year, he said, no one could do her role better than if they'd searched the world for a movie star, she would be the best one in the world. And her great coronation, the great celebration of her monarchy, it, with the, the, the marvellous time in which, in, in uh, 1953, which, which it seemed to be the end of austerity Britain, even though rationing was still current, Churchill rather wildly set, took us off the sugar ration for 1953. And so the Ministry of Food were absolutely terrified that we were going to end up with, with, with completely sugared out. But we were going to be invaded by more Germans because of the, this wild need for sugar. This incredible celebration, on the end of her coronation, she lit these lamps going up and down the mall, and it was as if it was the beginning of a new reign, a new Elizabethan era. And after it, it's been nothing but we would we might say until the death of diana unalloyed success for the queen the her traveling around the world even though as we were saying her father saw himself as the king of empire she sees herself as the queen of commonwealth the empire has utterly disintegrated the 1970s 1977 the silver jubilee she talked about the end of empire that's not even relevant now our empire has utterly and you know thankfully disintegrated she herself has been tirelessly touring tirelessly waving tirelessly walking and the the birth of her children as she said about rather cruelly i think about poor elizabeth I, that you know she wasn't blessed with a husband and children like me the way in which she's promoted herself as a mother with prince charles with with princess anne here looking looking really cute there <laughs> looking really cute prince charles and princess anne and the and the, the children with whom she was much more relaxed prince andrew and prince edward and her eldest children these family portraits here the real intimacy of these family portraits go right back i i feel to victoria and she had these very intimate family portraits with her children painted by winterhalter that became that made this kind of her as such a successful middle-class monarch and when you know everyone read th things about awful divorces they, they say oh so unlike the home life of our own dear queen elizabeth and philip promoted this idea of the ideal home the ideal family that they were definitely part of which of course completely collapsed in the 1990s when when her children embarked when the marriages of her children were not as successful as their own. The 1990s were a time of the, were the most difficult time of Elizabeth's reign, the burning down of Windsor Castle and the, the, the massive outcry there was when it was, it was suggested that the taxpayer might fund it, the divorces and finally the death of Diana in 1997 in which there was much complaint against the Queen and her attitude of let's get on with things as I was talking about held her in not good stead at all. So the Queen now, in her Diamond Jubilee year, she's only got a few more years to try and overtake our longest reigning monarch and beat Victoria. So if she makes it to the 10th of, 10th of September 2015, she's going to beat Victoria. And then after that, she beats Victoria. Her next one she's got to do is she's got to beat Louis XIV of France and, and get it to 72 years. So she has been this incredibly successful, incredibly popular Queen. The outpouring of popularity we saw over the weekend is the great constitutional monarch the the great difference between her and elizabeth was that she reigned while elizabeth ruled she is a she a constitutional monarchy is what she has excelled at so their roles are very different if one was a, a great ruler one was one reigned but i think what they show most of all is that women can 
inherit the throne, can succeed on the throne and be incredibly successful queens. And we, I think in Britain, we particularly love our queens and they are so successful. And as a consequence, that's why I think it's a, a great innovation of the innovation at the end of last year that from now on, if William and Kate are to have a little girl, she will inherit the throne with it, just as a little boy would. So the fact that from now on, queens can inherit, little girls can inherit just with the same equality as little boys, I think is a tribute to the monarchy and a tribute to Elizabeth II and also to her predecessor, Elizabeth I. Thank you. That was Kate Williams. Kate is a historian and novelist. Her latest book is Young Elizabeth, The Making of Our Queen, which is published by Weinefeld and Nicholson. This was a concluding lecture in the Tower of London series. We organised them in association with historic royal palaces who run the Tower of London, Hampton Court, Kew Palace and other royal venues. You can find out more about historic royal palaces at hrp.org.uk. We hope to be organising more lectures in the near future, so please keep an eye on the magazine and an ear on the podcast for details of that. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Do join us again next week when we'll be discussing the National Health Service and the Battle of Monte Cassino. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and much, much more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is put together in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.